0: I have no idea, hey, for seven more minutes I can say good morning, so good morning again my church, that's my clock to make sure that my kids' leaders don't hate me, that way I get finished on time, hey, I did talk to Jeff Murphy on the phone last night, he called because he's always worried about things whenever he's gone, and like I told you last week, he's worried that a bunch of old men in his place can't handle things, and so uh, when he was getting off the phone with me, he says, I got to call Richard, and make sure everything's okay, I said, hey, look, everything's okay with Richard, you know, don't, don't y'all love Richard up here? I think he does a great job, but I said, if you want to call and talk to Richard, that's fine, but <clears throat> you don't have to ask him if everything's okay. A bunch of old men can handle it, but uh, anyway, he did say he's looking forward to seeing y'all next Sunday, and he will be back, and back to Richard for just a moment. I don't know that I have ever been introduced as somebody who's going to open up a can on other people. I just—I'm not that tough. I'm not that strong. I've never been a fighter. You know, I just—I so I don't know about this whole opening up a can on you, but uh, you gotta love Richard. He's—he's uh, he's a lot of fun. Hey, uh, Ed began our series last week on overflow, and the—the the real question, and Ed did a great job in defining, just kind of where we need to start and where we need to consider starting with how do we operate in the Christian life beyond something that just checks off the boxes, fills in the blanks, does all the duties, and moves on. How do we move away from that? Because there's nothing fulfilling in that. Uh, which actually kind of empties the tank and, and runs us dry. How do we move from that to being able to live with and demonstrate an overflow of what God is doing in us? And as Ed adequately told us, he says, it's not about checking off things on your list. It's about making sure things are right in your heart. And so I appreciate how Ed started that. And I'm going to say a couple things about that as we move on to a couple of other uh, parts of the message today. But I'm really passionate about what I want to share with you today. It does not make me an expert at all on what I want to share with you today. I'm a fellow journeyman with you in this process. And I believe, though, that there is tremendous amounts of freedom awaiting us if we can begin to get our hands around this thought uh, of what God wants to do in us and in our soul to nourish us to a place where we are overflowing all the time as opposed to this feeling empty all the time and feeling drained by the end of every week. And so th- uh, this is something I really want to uh, look forward to sharing some of these things with you. I told Richard, I told my wife, and it's kind of random, but it's really a, a very, very true. When Richard asked me earlier this week, he says, how can I pray for you? I said, pray that I can take 36 weeks worth of sermon material on this subject and bring it down to 36 minutes, okay? Now, again, that's a little random, but there's so much in here, so much that I'd love to share with you. That's why I brought more notes with me up here today than I usually ever have, and it's so that I'll stay on task, okay? Because if I get off of this, I could go on, and then we'll miss lunch, and y'all hate me too, and my kids' leaders will hate me, so we're going to stay close to this. Here's where I want to start. It's going to seem like a weird place to start, but I'm going to come back around to it at the end of the message, Somewhere before the beginning of time as we know it, God and all of uh, the heavenly angels in the heavenly realms, there was a uprising, if you remember. And the uprising began with the chief angel of that time by the name of Lucifer. And today we call Lucifer what? Satan or the devil or the enemy, all those kind of things. Lucifer believed a lie, okay, And it was a lie that filled him, and he believed it. And in fact, he must have been a pretty good salesman because he believed it so much that as he shared this lie and tried to gather an army to rise up against God, he gained one-third of the angelic uh, beings as a following to rise up against God. Now, we know what this lie is because the Scripture gives it to us, and it's found in Isaiah chapter 14. And I'm going to read a couple of these verses out of Isaiah 14 to... Give you what this lie is and tell you how it affects us today. It says here, and this is God talking about Lucifer at the time. He says, verse 12 of Isaiah 14 How you have fallen from heaven, O morning star, son of the dawn. You have been cast down to the earth, you who once laid low the nations. You, again referring to Lucifer, you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven, I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit enthroned on the mount of assembly, on the utmost heights of the sacred mountain. I will ascend above the tops of the clouds. And here's the lie summarized. I, Satan said, Lucifer, I will make myself like the Most High. That is the lie that Satan believed and he acted on. And what resulted in his departure or being kicked out, if you will, of heaven And now, to this day, from the beginning of time as we know it, from the book of Genesis to today, this is still the very same lie that Satan has not only believed for himself, but it is, listen to this, the only lie that Satan uses to this very day to tempt us with and to trip us up with. Now, before you say, yeah, but Mike, what about this, this, or this? It is the only lie that he uses in some varied form. You can trace it back to this very lie that he tells you every day that tempts you to sin and that trips you up. Satan does not have a big playbook. He is not some football coach with hundreds of plays in which to choose from and say, and say to himself, what can I get Mike on today? Some end around over here, some flea flicker over here. No, he has one lie. And the lie is represented to us in the book of Genesis, in Genesis chapter 3, where Adam and Eve are confronted by the serpent. And the serpent looks at them and tempts them with the, uh, the fruit of the tree. And Eve looks at him and says, we're not supposed to eat that fruit, nor are we to touch it, which she added on to God's command, or we'll die. And notice what Satan says to Eve in verse 4 of Genesis chapter 3. He says to her, you will not surely die, okay? He says in verse 5, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and here's the lie again, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now, the, the lie that Satan believed somewhere before the beginning of time as we know it is the same lie that he got Eve with, and that is you can be like God. Just like Satan thought to himself, I will be like God. I will ascend to the throne. I will rise up, and I will be like him. And the lie that he gives you and me every day is that same lie, and that is you can be like God. And here's what that means. Regardless of what it looks like, regardless of the end product, it is something like this. I can be in control of my destiny. I will be in control of my thoughts. I will be in control of what I see. I will be in control of all the things I hear. I will be in control of all the things I say, all the actions I do. And if life works really good, I can be in control of those around me. I can be like God. That's what Satan does. And that that lie in and of itself is the one play. In Satan's playbook that he uses over and over and over again because sin is that departure from what God has told us is right. And sin in that departing from that says that whatever it is that we choose in light of what God has told us means that I want to control my destiny. I want to control my future. I want to control my present. And I want to control those around me. In essence, it is saying, I want to be God in control of all these things. Now, I want you to remember that lie because I'm going to come back around to it as we summarize in the next few moments some of the things I want to share with you about how to live a life of overflow, okay? So, put that aside for just a moment. Major shift I need to ask you a question. We ask people all the time, how are you doing today? How's the wife? How's the kids? How's the job going? Hey, how are your parents doing? We're used to asking those kind of questions. Let me ask you a very different question in that realm, and that is this. What is the condition today of your soul? You ever been asked that question? What is the condition today of your soul? Not many people, hardly any people have ever been asked that question or have ever asked it of someone else. And one of the reasons why we don't ask that question is, is it's kind of like, hey, how you doing? That's just a way of saying, hey, fine, and we keep moving. But when you ask somebody the condition of their soul, and if they're ready to tell you, you better have some time to answer that question. Here's how we would answer it a lot of times in today's world, and here's how we kind of answer it without even knowing that we're revealing the condition of our soul. Life, to us, rips at and relentlessly competes against the nurturing of our soul. It demands, life uh, demands so much from us at work. Can I get a witness? You know you work way too hard. The demands of work, the demands of our kids, the demands of being married and having a spouse, husband or wife, the demands of our church, the demands of taking care of our family, maybe our parents, the demands of the community association of all the volunteer uh, organizations that I'm a part of, the demands of life hopelessly yet relentlessly rips away at our soul and we wonder at the end of the week, why am I so tired? Why am I so worn out? Why do I feel like I have nothing to give anybody else? I don't want to think about giving anything to anybody else. I want them to give to me. There are phrases and words we use like this. Have you ever used anything like this? Well, how is life treating you? You say, life just seems like it's out of control. Anybody ever been there? Life seems like it's literally out of control. And not only can I not analyze why, I don't have time to analyze why. i got to just keep going because I'm on this treadmill. And if I try to slow down, it's going to trip me up and it's going to throw me. And then I'm really in a mess. How many of you have ever said anything uh, like this? I feel like I'm going in four different directions at one time. Now, we always use the, the number four, don't we? I don't know why. I have no idea why. I'm not that smart. Why don't we say five or six or seven or three? But we always say four. I feel like I'm going in four different directions at a time. All the while, while we're constantly trying to stay moving, stay on that treadmill, but also striving for more all the while. This whole busyness thing has wrapped us up and it has engulfed us. And one of the things people say to me oftentimes is, Mike, I know you're busy, but. And my response to them is this. And I, and I say this on purpose and I'll tell you why. I look at them, I say, yeah, I'm busy, but everybody's busy. I mean, is there anyone out here that's not busy? I mean, we're all very busy. And this is why I say that. I try to protect myself against pride, okay, because busyness can be a pride thing. People love to tell you how busy they are. Oh, I got this to do, that to do, this to do, I got this person to see, I got to be here, there, and, and so forth. And it's like the resume of their busyness is being given to you because it's a pride thing. We love being busy. But you know what? There's a weird part of us. We hate being busy. We love being busy because it makes us feel good, makes us feel important, makes us feel needed. And it kind of swells up our pride. But then when we really are uh, in that, just that one moment where we're alone and you're going, man, I wish I wasn't so busy. We hate it, but we love it, and we can't can't figure this whole thing out. This whole busyness, this whole going in four different directions, this whole life is out of control is the world and it's Satan's most effective strategy to keep us from nurturing our soul and to keep us estranged from God. So I go back to the question again, what is the condition of your soul? Because the condition of your soul will dictate very much your ability to operate out of an overflow versus having just that empty tank. And it's not about whether you're so busy or not. It's about the condition of your soul. We love being busy, yet we resent it because we're afraid that we're not going to be busy enough. And the times that we do go on vacation, we begin to experience some of this downtime, this rest, that we so desperately look forward to and long for and we enjoy. And then when we get back from our vacations, just like some insane person, we pick the pace right back up again, right where we left off, and we're back in it again, and we wonder why life and our lifestyle makes us sick. So what would Jesus have to say to us today about this? Well, I'm going to share a couple things with you. I'm going to use Martha and Mary as one of the examples, as what Jesus would have you hear today uh, on this, Jesus shows up at Mary and Martha's place. Now, I don't know if it was a party, but it was some kind of gathering. And you know what it's like as you gather, uh, or someone's coming to gather at your place. There's a tremendous amount to do. You've got to make sure your house is clean, right? Because nobody could ever see it lived in. They got to they got to see your house as if it was immaculate. Can I get a witness? You know, so when they come over, they can never think, "Wow, people actually live here." It's got to look like a museum. So you got to get it right. You got to get it clean, sharp. I mean, everything straight, new flowers, new everything. You got to make sure you got your all your list done of all the things you've prepared, all the things you've bought, and all the kind of stuff. And that's that's kind of what's happening in this scene. And as Jesus comes on the scene here, Martha complains about what Mary is doing. Because in Martha's opinion, Mary is a deadbeat. Mary's not doing anything. Mary's sitting at the feet of Jesus. Mary is listening to the words of Jesus. Mary is soaking it all in. And Martha, she's a basket case. She's getting it all done. In fact, when we look uh, at verse 40 of Luke chapter uh, 11, excuse me, Luke chapter 10, it says, Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made, distracted by all the preparations that she had to do, she came to him and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do all the work by myself? Tell her to help me. She told Jesus what to do. That's kind of funny, but anyway, Jesus, you tell her to help me. She thought Jesus was going to help her, and then he says to her in verse 41, he says, almost... To try to soothe her and calm her down. Martha, Martha, you are worried and upset about many things. Worried and upset about many things. Now, right there, can describe our life in one verse. What life does to us and what life deals us with all of our work demands, all of our family demands, all of our volunteer demands, church whatever is all in there what happens is is we stand every day worried and upset about many things stressed out anxious and life is making us sick and Jesus looks at her and says you're upset and you're worried about many things verse 42 but only one thing is needed this is what he tells her only one thing is needed Mary has chosen that one thing. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. Mary has chosen the one thing, Martha, that if you can get your hands around, will help you out with being worried and upset about all these other things. And Mary has figured it out, and I'm not going to tell her to come help you. I'm going to tell her to stay right where she is. I'm not going to disrupt this because she has figured out it out. What Jesus is telling Martha is this. We have got to refocus. You need to refocus the effort of your life to nurture and take care of your soul. You nurture and take care of everything else. You nurture your garden. You take care of that garden. When there's not enough rain, you water it You go out there and you weed it. You take care of all these things. You nurture and care for your body. You go to the gym. You do all these things. But when are we going to stop and nurture and take care of our soul? And what Jesus is telling us today is this. Refocus the center of your attention and adjust your priorities. He's not asking us to abandon all the things we do in life. He's not saying, Mike, quit all this other stuff because I can't. The Bible says I'm in this world, though I'm not of it. I have to operate in this world. But he's saying that in the midst of doing all that, if you will adjust your center of attention, you will not be worried and upset by so many things. In fact, later on in uh, Luke, in Luke chapter 12, verse 31, again, we're told by Jesus, seek his kingdom and these things will be given to you as well. In other words, if we are, have our focus, we have our true north set on the kingdom of God, all the things that we're worried about seem to kind of work out, don't they? Have you ever been there and done that where you just kind of let go of everything? And then at the end of it you say, wow, how did all that work out? Because if we could focus our mind and our heart on, on the things of God and the things of His kingdom, all the things of the world seem to kind of come into place. But in all of our frustrations, in all of our disappointments of life, our lifestyle brings us to this place where we just say, you know, life just seems like it's nuts. Life is out of control. And God is not saying to us, change every activity you've ever had. You need to get rid of all those things. God's not calling us to go live in some monastery. God's not wanting you to become a monk and go and take a vow of silence the rest of your life and do nothing and just one wear, wear one robe and not have anything. He's simply calling us to set our heart on the things of God because a heart that's set on many things is a heart that's divided. And a heart that's divided runs empty. A heart that's divided runs dry. But a heart that's set on one thing, and that is nurturing the soul, then it can operate out of an overflow. You know, today, when, when, like tomorrow, when we see people at work, we're going to ask each other, hey, how are you doing today? And I guarantee you, somebody will say this to you, well, for a Monday, I'm doing okay. What does that mean? For a Monday, I'm doing okay. What it means is this, the, the soul wasn't even nurtured in church if they went to church, Church is not the key. It is not the key to nurturing your soul. It is one of the things that can nurture your soul. You can come into church, and you can be blessed by all kinds of great music, different ones singing, and the words, the lyrics of the song, they touch you, they nourish you, and then hopefully you get encouraged by a message from the Word of God, and it nourishes you, but it's not the key. The key is your personal daily attentive approach to nurturing your very soul and yet we we just don't do it we don't pay attention to it and the damaging effects of society continue to to win the day filling us with stress filling us with the temptation about more achievement that's necessary more security that we need my contentment level changes and and i always have to have more you know it's interesting it's interesting the response i got from the early service on this one too but Dallas Willard, I don't know if you've ever read of his books, but he in in, in one of his books he, he told the story of a scientific experiment. Now this is going to let you know what life is like. The scientists took mice, okay? And I don't know if you've ever dealt much with mice. For some reason my wife and I have had a couple of houses where mice just love being indoors, okay? If you ever want to hear those stories, that's for another day. Um, it's just My wife's sweating right now just thinking about the mice in in a couple of those houses. But they would take these mice and they would put them in different places. They put one by himself. Sterile environment, nothing else, one mouse. Several mice in this environment, and they injected them all with amphetamines, okay? They injected the mouse that was by himself with a dose 20 times higher than these that were in a group, all right? This one's wired for sound, right? Twenty times the dosage of amphetamines as these over here. Guess what the result is? The little bit of stimulation that these had over here caused such a frenzy and such an anxiety physically and emotionally, I guess. I don't know what kind of emotions a mouse has, but physically at least, jumping around carrying them like crazy and on average... They created such an environment that they died 20 minutes earlier than this one would ever die from that kind of a dosage of a drug because of all the frenzy surrounding it. And, they, and, they, and as they kept testing this, they said, this has got to be what it is because a, apart from that, apart from any of them having that, it just didn't happen nearly that quickly. Now, you might say to me, Mike, I don't do drugs. Okay. Well, guess what they did? They took a mouse and gave him zero drugs and put him in the same environment over here. And guess what happened to him? The hype, the anxiety, the stress engulfed him, and guess what? He embraced the same. He just accepted it. He said, man, this is life. I guess i got to do things like they're doing. And it killed him just as fast as it killed the rest. All the while, this over here with 20 times more drugs than anybody over here lived much longer. Now you say to yourself, Mike, I don't do drugs, and I'm not a mouse either. I don't know what to say to you then. I know this, that when you look at that illustration, you go, wow, that's my life. You can be a Christian. You can be a believer. You can be a follower of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, the one true God of all creation, the lover of your soul, and you can go into this place, this this world, this environment, this society, drug-free, okay? Okay? full of the Holy Spirit. And you can get amongst all that and before you know it, guess what happens? You are engulfed by it and you are embracing it. It is your world and you are doing it and you're wondering, life has got to be better than this. I mean... Y'all are probably like my wife and myself. We go, why are we so busy? Why can't we catch up? Why does everything just seem like it's just nuts all the time? We never have time for each other. We never have time for our kids. Have you called your mom? Mike, no, I don't have time to call my mom. All these kind of things. Am I alone or we kind of on the same page here? We, we wonder why life is like that. Well, overstimulation, just like the amphetamines, is killing us. We are rarely grounded in the moment. You know how I know we're, why we're rarely grounded in the moment? These things right here. <laughs> I mean, how many of you have texted in church, don't raise your hand, don't raise your hand, don't raise your hand. I can't, I can't ask the question without confessing. I have. I'm not grounded in the moment. How many of you can sit around a family dinner now without people in the family table going? You know, we can't even talk anymore. We're never, we're never grounded in the moment anymore, and especially with the Lord. And all the while... Our lives are disappearing in what we call the daily grind. And our life is going away in the midst of this grind. You know, with all that said and all that in mind, God has given us a great gift. God has given us a tremendous gift. Ed last week introduced it to us. He introduced it to us in a negative way because as he unrolled that scroll, if you, how many of y'all were here last week? Okay. Y'all remember he unrolled that scroll and he started talking about the Sabbath day and he listed and he read out the 39 prohibitions that you cannot do on the Sabbath. And as he said, and accurately so, in those 39 things, there were so many listings under each one that there were hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of things that that they had created that said, you cannot do this on the Sabbath. And the Sabbath was never intended for that. Never intended for that. It was always intended to be this great gift to you. And here's, where, here's what we find about the Sabbath in Exodus chapter 20, beginning in verse 8. The Lord commands us, actually. It's a command because He knows how good it is for us. He says, remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. How much is not any work? Zero. Neither you nor your son, I can't put my son to work this afternoon, or my daughter, her either, nor your manservant or maidservant, nor your animals, nor the alien within your gates. Verse 11, For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, But he rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Let me ask you a quick question about God resting on the seventh day. Do you really think the God of all creation was tired? Really? He's God. He wasn't tired, but he rested on the seventh day. Now, that's what a lot of you guys will tell me. I ain't tired. It ain't about whether you're tired or not. And by the way, if you think you're Superman, keep going with it. You'll find out the results and effects of that one day later. And one of us will show up at the hospital to help you out as you try to figure it out after that, okay? Or we might come visit you in a place where they take away your belts and knives and all the things, that, all that sort of thing. And we'll help you then. So when you think you're Superman, just remember their paydays coming. God was not tired. He did not rest from his six days of work and say, man, I've had enough. He rested from his work, and he enjoyed his work. Listen, here's a novel idea. Enjoy your work. You say, how do I do that, Mike? Well, you get a paycheck, don't you? It bought you a home. It bought you a great Lazy Boy sofa with a wonderful 50-inch flat screen TV. Kick that Lazy Boy back. Get you a big gulp and a bowl of popcorn and do that all day. Man, that's enjoying your work. Enjoy something, you know. Enjoy enjoy what you have. Just take a break from it all. Now let me ask you this. Excuse me. About this. Because this is connected. Here's another question. Just like the uh, how's uh, your soul doing? What is the condition of your soul? Here's another question for you. Do you delight in God? Now look, I know the Sunday school answer and I know the church answer. You're supposed to say back to me, yes, Mike, I delight in God. And I say back to you, yes, I do too. Well, now that we got all the nice things out of the way, here's another question for you. Do you really delight in God? Because you can look at your schedule from the past week and and then you can reveal to me the things that you really delight in. Because it'll it'll show what you delight in. And And then we come back and say, okay, okay, yeah, yeah, I could delight in God more. But you know what, Mike, I just don't have time. Well, guess what? I don't mean to keep answering your questions for you, but here's the deal. You don't have a time problem. I don't have a time problem. Time is not our problem. How many of us uh, have said, I wish there was one more hour in the day? I wish there was one more day in the week. If I had that one more hour or one more day, I could get it all done. Guess what? God has not shorted you on time. You don't have a time problem. The problem is the lack of a joyful, enthusiastic delight in God and our lack of deep affection towards Him is not because we lack time. It's because we lack the joy, the joyful, enthusiastic delight in God that He wants us to have in Him. And part of the Sabbath, part of that rest, is giving us the ability To delight in Him. How many of you, after a long week of work, uh, like my wife and I, we work as long as anybody else, okay? Just like, like I said earlier, everybody's busy. How many of you delight in the fact that, wow, I finally get to have a date with my spouse tonight on Friday? Or I get to, on Saturday, do nothing except hop in the car, and it's just her and myself, and we get to go do this. That's what the Sabbath does. That's what the Sabbath does for you, in your family, but it also does that for you and the Lord. In fact, here's what I could say about you. I bet I'm right, okay? If I'm not, tell me afterwards, okay? Because I want to know who I'm wrong about. And and I'm okay with being wrong, by the way. I bet you are overscheduled at work. Everybody in still? You're underscheduled at home. Still in, everybody? And you are completely unscheduled with the nourishing of your soul. Overscheduled at work, underscheduled at home, and completely unscheduled with the nourishing of your soul. We know what we need to do, but we choose not to do it. We nourish our retirement accounts, we nourish other things, but we don't nourish our souls. I'm going to share with you one last story out of the book of Mark. i got to tell you a little bit because I only gave him a couple of verses uh, in this before we bring those up. And I'm going I'm to make a connection between us today and this demon-possessed man. So you might think, well, Mike, are you comparing me to the demoniac in the Bible? Well, yes, I am. But give me a minute and I'll tell you what I mean, okay? Before you go home and say, hey, the pastor called me a demon-possessed man today. Jesus hops in a boat, Goes across the water. And he gets to the other side. This is how the story goes. I'm giving you just a little bit of uh, background here. As he gets out of the boat on the other side of the water. A man who lived in a cemetery. The Bible says he lived among the tombs. Met him at the shore. A demon possessed man. Nobody could handle him. He was chained hand and foot. And could break the chains at any time. Um, No one was strong enough to corral him in any way, and folks left him alone because he was nuts, okay? He was that frenzied mouse over here that no one could get a a grip on. And when he saw Jesus coming from a distance, the Bible says that he fell on his feet and he shouted at the top of his lungs, and that's where we pick it up in verse 7. The demoniac says to him, he shouted at the top of his voice, what do you want with me, Jesus? Son of the Most High God, swear to God that you won't torture me. Now, let's stop the tape for just a moment right there. This is how we're like this demoniac. We know, we know that we've not nourished our souls. We know that we have bought into, back to the lie, that we have bought into the lie that we have to live this way and control our lives. So we've bought in the lie that we can be like God by controlling everything, going and coming and all that, and not bowing the knee to God, not uh, following the Sabbath rest. We know that we've not done these things. And all of a sudden, you hear hear a pastor telling you, nourish your soul, nourish your soul, nourish your soul. And you say to yourself, I'd like to do that, I'd like to do that, but I'm scared. How do I do this? I don't want to do this. God's going to take some things away from me. That's what this demoniac is saying when he says... What do you want with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High? God, swear to God that you won't torture me. Here's what some of our rebuttals look like right now. God, I understand what I need, but don't take away my boat. Don't take away my house. What? Swear to God, if you will, Jesus, that you will not take away my job. I don't want another job. I know my job drives me crazy. I know it requires so much of me, but, but uh, I have somebody there. If I give that up, I'm going to have to start all over. God, don't take away. Don't mess with my life. I know what I need to do, but, you know, and even though I hate it, I kind of love it, so I want to keep it. So God, don't mess with me. That's what it looks like. That's why we battle this in our minds and hearts all the time. We go away going, man, I need to make some changes. I need to make some adjustments. And then all of a sudden we say, you know what? I can handle it. I'll be okay. That's what this demoniac is saying. I don't want you to change my life. It says, for Jesus had said to him, come out of this man, you evil spirit, in verse 8. And then verse 9, this is how Jesus responds to him. Are you ready for this? This is huge. It says, Jesus asked him, what is your name? What is your name? Jesus looks at this man and says, okay, I get it. I understand what's going on with you right now. And he stops and says, what? What? is your name. Now right now you're probably thinking, Mike, what what are you saying? Here's what I'm saying, because here's what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying, look, it's not about changing all this other stuff for you right now. It's about this. I want to establish right now a personal, intimate, love relationship with you. And here's how I'm going to start it. Tell me your name. In that one question, Jesus demonstrates the love of God over all things. It's the kind of love that I called in the first service that, wow, I've never been kissed like that ever before in my life kind of love. Okay? All of a sudden, this demoniac who nobody wanted to have anything to do with who everybody stayed away from, had somebody look at him and say, what is your name? I want to demonstrate my love for you by saying, okay, we'll deal with all that other stuff later. Tell me your name. Let's spend some time together. I mean, if we're going to, I need to know your name. My name's Jesus. You know my name. You've already called me by name, but what is yours? And it's that kind of love that I call, wow, I've never been kissed like that ever before in my life kind of love. It's the kind of love that no human can describe because it's the kind of love that can only come from God. And Jesus being God offered that kind of love that was so radical and so crazy that it was just unfathomable by those who watched. Everybody's probably going, what is Jesus doing? This guy's nuts. And Jesus wants to take you right now in the midst of your frenzied life and say to you something like this, what is your name? Why don't we get reestablished with a relationship here? Why don't we just chat for a moment before we worry about all the other stuff that's about you. Let's just spend some time nourishing your soul. If evil can place such a high value on your soul that that the enemy would lie to you and say, you can be like God and control all things. Keep going, keep going, keep going if He'll place that kind of value on your soul, shouldn't you find a way to nourish your soul? So I ask you today, do you believe that God loves you? Not the Sunday School answer or the church answer. Do you really believe that God loves you with that I've never been kissed like that ever before kind of love? Do you really believe that? Because His commands of the Sabbath, His commands that As as he told Martha, you're worried and upset about so many things. Really, there's only one thing that matters, and I'm not going to take it away from Mary. These commands are out of a love that God has for you, out of the great desire that he has for you, for you to be nourished, so that when you go back into that frenzied world that's out there, you can operate out of an overflow of a nourished soul. And the reason why you don't have a nourished soul is you don't take the time to do it. You say, well, Mike, how do I take time to do it? We don't have time for that today. <laughs> I'll give you three quick hints, and then I got, we got to quit because the, the leaders back there are going to kill me. Listening prayer, and if you don't know what that means, you've never done it then. And the reason why we don't do it is we don't have time to sit there and wait on God. We finish our prayer. We tell Him everything we want to tell Him. We say amen, and we get up and leave, and God's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. I I had something to say, but you don't have time to listen. Okay. And the soul goes unnourished. The other two are solitude and silence. Things we avoid like the plague. You know why? Because we hate all that noise around us, but we love all that noise around us. Try to sit quiet for five minutes. It'll ruin you if you've never done it before. (laughs) It'll ruin you until you learn it. Silence Solitude, listening prayer—that will be enough for you to chew on for a while in the days ahead. I need, like I said, I need 36 weeks to talk about this, not 36 minutes. But God's desire for you is to operate out of the overflow that we're talking about. But the only way you can operate that way, because you're not going to be able to leave the frenzied world in which we live, we can't just walk away from it. But the only way you can operate in it, out of the overflow, is to nourish your soul. And church today is not nearly enough to do this for your week. You've got to do it on your own. And it comes out of a belief that God loves you enough to say to you, what's your name? And then just spend time with Him. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank You for the fact That you love us with what I describe today as that, wow, I've never been kissed like that before kind of love. And Lord, that's just not going to describe it. Your amazing grace is too amazing to be put to words even. Lord, I think we understand that intellectually. But we never take the time practically to enjoy your love for us. We're so busy. We've bought into the lie. The lie that says you can be like God, Mike. Just take control of your destiny. Mike, if you stop and rest, if you stop in solitude and in silence and listening prayer, then God's going to be in control of your life. Wouldn't you rather be in control of your life? Don't you want to be like God? Get with it. Get busy. All the while, Satan in this world strategy is to get us away from the place of silence. Get us away from that place of solitude to get us away from that place of listening prayer. And God, we miss then not only the great love that you have for us, but we miss the nourishment that our soul so desperately needs to go back into a frenzied world and demonstrate the love of God through our own overflow. Lord, the city of Columbus is looking for great examples of this. They need it. And Lord, the people in the my church room today are just the ones to give it. Lord, help us to say no to the lie that we can be like you. And to embrace the truth that, Lord, we need you. And without you, we can do nothing. And that by spending this kind of time nourishing ourselves with you, we will experience the overflow that we so desperately long for. Every day. And that we say we look forward to when we get a time of way, But we can live this every day, even in the midst of the frenzy. If only we'll come back to you and confess our need for you. And allow you to lead us. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.